Good afternoon once again. In that chant, uh, it says it's rarely encountered. Um, doesn't mean it's rare. This means we don't usually see it or hear it. Um, and part of the reason why we don't usually hear it or see it is because we're not paying attention. Um, and that's why the last line says, may we truly see, hear, receive what is being offered, shared. And that applies to listening to a talk like this, but it also applies to studying a text, uh, chanting something, uh, to every moment. It involves, you know, when you're working in the kitchen, when you're cleaning the toilets, <coughs> when you're walking by yourself, it involves being open to receive whatever arises, whatever presents itself. Um, the great uh, Vietnamese, the great late Vietnamese master Thich Nhat Hanh <coughs> said it's like uh, we come to, a, to listen to a talk like this as if we were the earth receiving rain. Mm -hmm. And the earth, it doesn't think about if it likes that rain or doesn't or agrees with it or doesn't agree with it, or um, has no, had, doesn't have the qualities that it thinks are the most nutritious or something, it just opens and allows the rain, it just receives the rain. And the rain finds its way to the seeds in the earth that need it and will be nourished and cultivated and grow from that. The same is true of us. So when we come to a talk like this, we just open and listen. Without, usually when we hear a talk or listen to a podcast or have a discussion with someone, automatically we're thinking about, do I agree with that or don't I? Um, how does that fit with the way I see things? How does that not fit? Well, in this situation, it doesn't apply. Um, in that situation, it does. It's very natural. That's how we mostly function. This is a different kind of circumstance. It, it brings us more to that space that Joel was talking about yesterday of not knowing. If we don't know, then everything is possible. And we just open, like the earth to the rain, and receive. Afterwards, you can think about it and say, oh, I didn't agree with that, or that was interesting what she said, or that really spoke to me. But you can probably more feel that that resonated for you if you're just letting it be now. And then afterwards, you may feel more that it resonated. Or even while you're sitting here, you may sense the resonance more than if you were trying to fit it into a category, a position, an opinion, um, a like or dislike of what is being said. Um, and that's what this, this chant at the beginning is, is 
putting us into that mindset of may we truly realize it, may we truly receive here and maintain it. Um, And this, we can also practice this in our relations with others. So you're having a discussion with someone and you can have that, you can put that same thing into practice. Just opening your heart to what they're sharing with you and just receive it. Of course, if you're called upon to then respond, you'll have a better chance of responding from a place of wholeheartedness, like I said this morning, or authenticity if you haven't while they're speaking, started figuring out if it's right or wrong and what you want to respond to it and how it fits with your worldview or something. Um, of course, in a business meeting, you might have to have a different approach, and yet the same thing can apply. I used to practice this with my colleagues in news meetings where we decided what would go into the newspaper. Very often, I didn't agree with what they wanted to put on the front page, because that was mostly the discussion of what goes on the front page. What are the six most important news pieces of the day to put on the front page? I can't say I always agreed, especially once I had started Dharma practice and my Zen studies, and my worldview, my way of experiencing the world was different. But I still tried to listen and hear what their positions were and why they believed that should be on the front. And if I was called upon to propose a story for the front, I really tried to come back to my training, my Zen practice, of what's the most important thing? Um, is it really that... Um, you know, the stock market has fallen 3% today? Or is it really that um, a US drone um, sent a missile and killed the leader of Al-Qaeda yesterday? Um, is that really the most important information of the day? Um, I have to see it within the context. What is a newspaper? Um, the readers of the newspaper aren't looking for a Dharma talk, frankly. <laughs> and you're not looking for the news report here. <laughs> so we have to see it within the context. What's appropriate? And the best way we can do that is by staying open, not knowing. Just receiving, receiving the others, receiving the situation, not judging, and then saying, okay, within this context, Probably that story of the Al-Qaeda leader being killed by an American missile yesterday is probably important in the context of that daily newspaper and the readers and what they're talking about. Here, it's something else. For us, that's not what the news of the day is, the Al-Qaeda leader. In this place where we are in this practice we're doing here today. Um, so what is it then? What is the news of the day for us? 
for each of us, it's probably something different. Um, as Thich Nhat Hanh also said, no teacher can give you the truth, can find the truth for you. Only you can. So I can sit here and say all kinds of things. Jolissa can sit here and say things. Um, but you, your true way is in your heart. And all we can do is give indications. Um, and that's, we speak from our heart, from our experience, and share that with you, and maybe that speaks to you. Maybe it doesn't, but it's Dharma rain coming down and uh, often if we if we stay present with the not knowing just open we don't even realize that we've become wet uh, I heard that the tents yesterday all got soaked up by the swimming pool I think it's because the sprinkler system went on or something yeah. and no one knew about it so that was a different kind of not knowing. <laughs> um, but the, the tents got wet, and then they each, according to their circumstances, I don't know, maybe some people could sleep in them then or not, and others weren't, were too wet and they couldn't sleep in them. So they responded uh, according to their situation. There wasn't one truth for each of them. It was one event of the sprinklers, but then each tent was in a different place, and each person had different... Maybe the tent was open, and the water went straight in. Maybe the tent was closed, and the water didn't. I don't know. I don't really know what happened, but I was present from a distance to all the activity going on around it, because I was giving interviews, and I could see up where they were, and they were all very active. Um, And Sal's Rakuzu was intact. Even if it was in the tent that apparently was the most flooded one. So it emerged intact. <laughs> Not wet at all? Nothing? Not wow. I, I had a, a place with 20 centimeters water. Yeah. And the Rakuzu was <laughs> in the paper. Amazing. Holy sacred. <laughs> Wise woman. <laughs> she knew where to put it. I bring it inside because I don't believe. <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you, Sale, when I brought it from Paris. Sale gave this to me last summer, her officer. And we were supposed to do this ceremony long before, but there was COVID and all kinds of things. And when I was putting it into my suitcase, I thought, hopefully my suitcase doesn't get lost. <laughs> <laughs> because it did, Debbie's ruckus who got stolen. Some of you know that story. The opposite of your story. <laughs> <laughs> she had just finished it. And she put it on a shelf in our center in Paris. And like a week or two later, the center was robbed. 
Among the things they took, you know, they took like the coffee maker and the kitchen equipment, weird stuff like that. They didn't take the Buddha, which was an antique Indian Buddha, which would have been probably the most valuable thing in the place. Well, in terms of money, in terms of value, Debbie's was probably the most valuable. And they had all these rock. We had all these rakusus. We all left our rakusus there. And the, remember all these? This was there. All of my other ones, Jola's, uh, everyone's rakusus were there. And they took two rakusus. They took Debbie's, which had nothing written on it, which was brand new, just this plain black rakusu, brand new. And they took someone else's. We don't know why that other one was taken. <laughs> um, actually, for her, it has great meaning because she wanted to. She was ready to stop practicing, and and for her, it was the signal that that was that was right. That was was appropriate. Um, but we never know. We, never know. <laughs> we respond to the circumstances. I think they wanted the plastic bag, now that you're telling us. It was in a plastic bag. They and so they probably just took the plastic bag, bag and what was in it? Yeah. Uh, it was a Bluetooth. See, right. So we just never know. We can't plan, really, because, you know, we don't know where the water's going to go. Or we don't know who, when the robber will come. <laughs> Um, but as there are things that can't be stolen, and that's why Debbie has the name she has, Bright Moon, um, comes from a Zen story where a robber comes to a hermit's hut in which he has very few possessions, and um, the, later that night, the Hermit comes back and sees that everything is stolen and looks out his window and said, oh, he could not take the bright moon. <laughs> and the moon is very symbolic in Zen, the true self, who you truly are. And so I, it was very appropriate. I responded to that situation and gave that name to Debbie. She might not have that name had her Rakosu not been stolen. <laughs> and to even make the story more unreal is the woman who helped her make her Rakosu, who I had no idea what her Dharma name is. We found out later her Dharma name is Bright Moon. It's kind of weird, huh? <laughs> anyway, all of this just to say that we come here and we just receive. And when I am sitting here speaking to you, I'm doing the same thing. I'm just responding to the situation and listening to what arises. And it was a difficult training with my teacher to learn to do that. And Joel can probably understand because he's had the same training of not preparing and really listening to your heart. Um, you will go to some Zen groups uh, where they will have written their whole talk and they will basically sit there and read it to you. It's not at all the same thing. I'm sure it's valuable and has 
we, we can learn great things from it. In our lineage, though, we tend to try to stay as true as we can to just what arises in this moment and trust that what arises will be appropriate. Um, in that spirit, funny how it came around to that, I brought this story that I read during the break, during the, um, from, a, from a little book that's called The Bernie Koans. And it's uh, the successors of the Zen teacher Bernie Glassman. Um, after he died, they shared stories among each other, stories about him and situations, and, and presented them as koans. Because actually that's what koans are. They're stories that come from people's practice and that have then been transmitted through the centuries. Most of the, the classical ones come from the, the ninth century in China, which is considered the golden age of Zen. Um, but there are modern ones, and there are, there are even very modern ones in other collections. But, so these are modern ones. And this one, um, instead of reading, sometimes they don't really work like our usual clones do. So I'll read the, what is considered the commentary, but actually it's just a little background on Bernie and then a little koan at the end. Um, so, before Bernie became a Zen master, he was a rocket scientist. So just Bernie Glassman was, um, our lineage began in America, our, our modern era, began in the Los Angeles Zen Center with a Japanese man, Maizumi Roshi, and his first student and disciple and successor was Bernie Glassman, an American Jewish guy from Brooklyn. So, before Bernie became a Zen master, he was a rocket scientist. When he met his teacher, Maizumi Roshi, he was working at McDonnell Douglas as an aerospace engineer on a project to put a man on Mars. McDonnell Douglas is this huge aerospace industry figure, company. Bernie was a gifted mathematician with a PhD in applied mathematics and was well versed in the esoteric language of science. <laughs> he was only one of the few people in the West at that time, so this would have been the 60s, the early 60s, who had a rigorous training in both science and Zen holding a unique position to see the similarities and differences between these two worldviews. In a piece entitled Space-Time, Space-Time, Mu, Mu is Koan, published in 1975 in the ZCLA Journal, he laid out an argument that science could not completely specify the nature of reality. <coughs> as it was beyond the ability of language and concepts to do so, including the language of mathematics. It's too bad that is isn't here. You might have a different opinion. The implication was that science, as a worldview, is incapable of providing an ultimate truth regarding the nature of reality. 
What Bernie, what Bernie was saying was that science, as a worldview, as a view of the world, is incapable of providing an ultimate truth regarding the nature of reality. It can explain a lot of things, but the nature of reality, it, it cannot provide an ultimate truth, as Bernie says. So in his one of the books he wrote, Bernie, Bernie explained, described his deep realization of oneness and interconnectedness of life. While he was carpooling to work with his colleagues at McDonnell Douglas. So carpooling means, maybe, do you know what that means? Yeah. Car sharing. Mm. People, people, car sharing. Covoiturage. Um, mm -hmm. So every morning in Los Angeles. Like you, you, a group of people get together and say we're going to the same job, so we go together in the car. Um, what? Like a ride sharing or something. Yeah. Um, but at that time, it was it was not. Of course, there wasn't internet. You couldn't do it with apps and things. So you just did it with your colleagues or something or your neighbors. And in Los Angeles, this was a big thing because the traffic is horrendous in Los Angeles and everybody drives everywhere. So he was riding with his colleagues to work at the, in the aerospace industry, stuck, stuck in traffic on the Los Angeles freeway, which was terrible, and sitting in the back seat and looked around and saw everyone else stuck in their cars on the Los Angeles freeway on their way to work. And this was a great awakening for him. <laughs> it's possible anywhere. He, he, his deep realization of oneness and the interconnectedness of life came on the Los Angeles freeway in the middle of a traffic zone at 8.30 in the morning or probably early. And when he had that realization, the result of that experience was he vowed to feed all the hungry ghosts in the world. Hmm. Having seen that, having seen how uncomfortable everyone was, how much suffering that was, not just sitting there stuck in the traffic on the Los Angeles freeway, which is probably one of the worst experiences you can have. <laughs> um, not only that, but he saw the deeper suffering, the deeper disease, the, 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 the deeper malaise of not realizing the nature of reality and the interconnectedness. And when he saw that, he vowed that he would feed them. He saw them as hungry ghosts. That's a realm in Buddhist cosmology, it's the realm of the hungry ghosts. It's just all of us hungering for something we don't have trying to feed ourselves with all kinds of things. His life mission at that moment shifted from learning and applying the secrets of the universe deduced from mathematics and science to ending the suffering of all those in need. As a result, he left his job as an aerospace engineer to live the life of a bodhisattva. So what did he realize beyond numbers, words, and letters? 
And then in this story, there is the Korean Zen master Sun San Sanim once asked his students, what is a human being's correct job? After a number of failed responses from his students, he said, now you ask me. <laughs> a student asked, what is a human being's correct job? Sun Sanim said, how can I help you? <laughs> so this is to feed. Sorry? So this is the word feed. Feed, in Bernie's case, feed. The way he saw it was that people needed, they were hungry and they needed to be fed. And he, as we know, he started all kinds of projects responding to that. Um, but another story from of that kind, just a short one, um, he, he, uh, where was this guy? This one. Oh, yeah. Um, Bernie and one of his students were walking in Harvard Square. Bernie was giving, had been asked to give a series of lectures at Harvard, which is, you know, the top, top of American universities. And as they were crossing Harvard Square... Excuse me, one of his Zen students? Sorry? One of his Zen students or one of yeah, his Yeah, one of his Zen students, one of his, who told this story, <clears throat> who accompanied him, drove him there and accompanied him. When, uh, when they were walking across Harvard Square, when a homeless man, dirty and smelly, called out to Bernie, hey, got any spare change? Which means... Um, you know, spare change is extra, extra coins. Yeah. Bernie smiled broadly and asked, how are you doing, man? Bernie asked if he had slept out the night before, in parentheses, in quote marks, meaning had he slept outside that night. A lively conversation ensued as if they were two old friends who hadn't seen each other in a long time. After a few minutes, Bernie offered the man his hand and wished him well. Delighted, the man thanked Bernie for taking the time to speak with him. That was Bernie's way of feeding, in that moment, feeding that man. He called, the man called out to him. I don't know, Bernie didn't have any money, or he, Bernie never had any money. He was really good at using other people's money. But. Um, and I don't mean that negatively. He just was a good fundraiser. And he put that money to work to serve people. So, um, he responded to that situation. And that man needed something. Bernie responded by offering him a conversation, shaking his hand. Relating to his situation, Bernie, who led street retreats and slept on the street himself sometimes, um, knew what it was to sleep out, to sleep in the street, acted like he was his old friend. And, old, and the man thanked him for that. So we, when we say we respond to the situation, it's not always like we think it is. Um, it comes from that place of not knowing. Bernie didn't know he would meet that guy. He didn't know what that guy would say. 
He probably wasn't, he didn't have a scenario or a routine of how he responded to people. He really tried to stay just what it is. Like we sit here and we just receive what's being said. And then we respond. Um, and our, our practice is great training for that. We're just sitting here on our cushions and receiving what arises. Mm. Trying not to <coughs> grab onto that thought and chew on it or push away that other thought and try to get rid of it or not dwell on the fact that we're sweating and hot and um, thinking the other people are doing this much better than I am or um, I'm doing it much better than everyone else is. <laughs> I sit so well. <laughs> Nobody notices. Um, just sit there. Just sit there. Um, so maybe when Bernie was sitting in the back of that car on the Los Angeles freeway, he was just sitting there. Um, he must have had some kind of letting go of his ideas and opinions at that moment in order to see everyone around him and see with clarity, like I was talking the day before yesterday, to see with clarity the situation. Wow, look where we are. We're all stuck here in this traffic. And the same thing can apply to um, to the greater ills, you know, so we've been talking about the climate crisis as we, because we're all concerned about it. Um, and I remember Bernie once saying, I'm just thinking about, I've studied with Bernie and I remember him saying, thinking of him just because of this, um, when we were at Auschwitz and on a retreat and in the evening one night there was a rabbi who was leading us in Hebrew songs and chanting and things. And it was a big, huge group, you know, 200 people and from all over the world, survivors of the Holocaust, children of German soldiers, um, people like me who had nothing really to do with it except that we're all interconnected. Um, and spontaneously, this rabbi, his music was so intoxicating and we were singing it and chanting it, spontaneously everyone got up and we started dancing. And he, you know, this kind of like Hebrew Jewish dance that he was leading us in. There were some people who were very upset with this. And, and that, the next day in a meeting of, of kind of the leaders of the retreat, um, a lot of people expressed their distress and how we can't do that at Auschwitz. This is disrespectful and inappropriate. And how can we do that? How can this happen? And it should never have happened. And some guy turned, leaned over to Bernie and said, you have to fix this. And Bernie said, I'm not here to fix things. I'm here to bear witness, to listen. 
and adding that there are no utopias. So even we had this utopian vision that uh, thinking, I should say Eduardo has done a lot of work with utopia. Um, but we had this vision that, oh, the, you know, the earth will return to its original nature and be beautiful and everything, the water will be clean and the air will be clean. And as, as Adrian said at our retreat in, in Moisey a few months ago, you know, we were all thinking of it from the human perspective. You know, maybe we will eliminate ourselves. Our species may disappear, but we're not the center of it all. The rest of it may go on and do something else, but the humans will be eradicated because we did it to ourselves, maybe. So this utopian view of how it should be, like I said the other day, it keeps us from being with what is. So in Bernie's case, you know, this utopian vision this guy had of we should do this and we shouldn't do that, there was great healing in that singing we were doing. And there was great, you know, we were singing in this place of so much suffering, not only for Jews, but for the gypsies and the gay people and the communists and the resistance and the Germans who were perpetrating the, that there's great suffering in imposing so much suffering on other people. So there was great healing in this song and dance. At the same time, Bernie was acknowledging that he was bearing witness to the suffering of the people who didn't like it. He was also, he wasn't saying <coughs> one is right and one is wrong. He was welcoming, giving them all the space to express it. And I think the next night, maybe, there was them. There was an opportunity for the people who disagreed with it and didn't like it to come forth and express what they had felt and their deep pain around it. And, um, again, we just don't know what, this, what will arise. And we can better respond to what arises if we just listen. If we just receive like the earth receives the rain. <clears throat> and and I, I went to Yashu's retreat like on the last year, I think Bernie, like last year Bernie hold it himself, obviously it's still happening every year, it was last year that he was alive. Was it, was it when he was in a wheelchair? And, yeah, 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 and I think I remember him saying that because we had a celebration in the end, like where everyone could contribute, same as we do, as we did here as well, like everyone could contribute with something. And I remember him saying, like, he didn't like it in the beginning. Like, I, I think he had, like, a position as well, but he didn't like the celebrating, the celebratory of it. Um, so at the same time, which is very interesting what you're saying, that he, even though he had, like, maybe an opinion, that as far as I remember him saying, that he holds space for everything. Mm. Even though he maybe had some issues with that. Mm. Yeah. But I think I think even I remember him saying as well that something about like I don't know it's it, Auschwitz also being a place of you know life as yeah. weird as it was yeah. um, of celebration of life yeah because the grass and the flowers and the trees have returned and probably the next spring after the war you know. Uh, Um...
didn't really intend to talk about all of this, but that's what came up. Um, because I guess, you know, hearing all these stories in these extreme situations, but the same thing applies in every moment. Every moment is the whole of life. Every moment is the universe. Um, and we are all one with one another in every moment. Uh, the interconnection of life is every moment. So we can apply this. This is really practical teaching, really practical experience we gain here by sitting here on our cushions and doing this together and eating together and walking together and um, you know, with Miguel's suggestion of let's all take that first step together. Um, sharing our food, washing it with the servers are serving us, but they're part of the whole dance of the Orioke. Well, they're doing it with us. Unfortunately, we're not there to serve them after. Um, that's Maybe we can serve them in other ways. I don't know. <laughs> that's why we answer them with a bow, because we're grateful for them, for their offering, their service. And since the, when we were talking about the vows the other day, and various people have offered me other possibilities, um, and I too have thought about it, trying to find some word that might work, and I thought maybe, you know, um, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to welcome them, maybe, you know, inspired by Bernie's welcoming. Um, Something along that line. Yeah, that is very beautiful because uh, it takes out the, the kind of savior hero. <laughs> Yeah, good word, trap, because it can be a trap. You know, we think, oh, we have to save everyone. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think it's good too, because um, the, the, the sentient beings are numberless. I love to save them. Then you mentioned serve, then see them. Mm -hmm. Pay attention. Pay attention. It's yeah. welcoming. And I've been thinking of it, and and I I, I figured myself as I am aging, I cannot go on saving. I was thinking about the animals. I used to bring them and save them. I, I cannot save them. They are big. I I try to serve them when possible. And I, I stood on the see them. <coughs> I continue and go on seeing them. And I thought, well, for me, and today, when I lost my eyes, <laughs> aging, if I am still there, welcome them. Yeah, <laughs> it's good for me. <laughs> it works. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sorry, uh, um, as we are, 
um, as well uh, sentient, sentient beings? Um, are we in a special place to, to see the other sentient beings? Or we are all seeing each other? Because I don't think we have a central place to, to look from that special place to save or look or welcome all sentient beings because we are all, 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 all way, we are also as sentient beings, uh, sentient being. Exactly. So, of course, we need to start with ourselves and see ourselves. And when we truly see ourselves, we see that I and the other are not different. And, you know, it's like sometimes we say we can't possibly see the universe because we are the universe. Um, and yet, we can see each singular manifestation of it. And so if we see our singular manifestation of the universe or of this being, then we can truly see the other manifestations and appreciate them for what they are. Different and yet one. You know, another thing Bernie used to say was, the only thing we have in common are our differences. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that we're just different manifestations of the same thing. truly see um, this this answer now asked me and the, the master said um, how can I help you if you really see it's really true because most part of times I, I don't even look at people who are asking money because what I see is something that needs money so I want I am not going to help anyone. But if I see it, and that's the reason why Bernie, when started the conversation, when the man goes on, there is other things people need, but I just see someone that wants money, and I don't see the rest. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Well, and you can apply this, so, you know, the question was, what's the best job for a human being? Well, we all have our jobs, right? We all have work that we have to do in order to feed ourselves and our families and whatever. But in your work, in your job, you can ask yourself that question. How can I help you? I know myself as a journalist, it became, how can I help the readers? How can I best serve the readers? So. Whatever information I was ex asked to transmit, how can I best do my research? How can I best choose which story is for them, to serve them? It became serving the readers instead of serving me, my ego, getting my name on all the stories, um, climbing up the ladder, being higher up in the chain than my colleagues, um, winning discussions, you know, making my colleagues agree with me or something. It, became, it changed completely when I, exactly that. How can I serve you, the readers? And you all can have things like that in your own work. 
how can I serve this moment? How can I serve my colleague? How can I serve the client? Um, I mean, I have no idea what all your jobs are, but. Um, yeah, getting more and more close to, to express love, which is not so easy. Uh, yeah. We feel love, but then express it. It's sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, like it says on the back of this requisite, that the wildflower Sangha gave me, made for me and gave me, my teacher wrote this on the back, the mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. Yeah. So it's the mind that has a hard time expressing love or seeing the oneness. The heart crosses over that abyss, that separation. It's very striking to me, the, 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 the story with Bernie's awakening that, and it also goes back to many stories of awakening, how the, the understanding of the, the oneness of inter, interdependence goes hand to hand with the desire to help, or the desire to respond, or the desire to connect. It's like there's one thing, and then the next thought is, how can I help? And, and it's, I mean, and also in the story of the awakening of the Buddha, he's like, oh yeah, I've discovered this thing, and and then he doesn't feel it's going to be too complicated. But then, really, what pushes him to do it is just compassion. That's how it's told. So it really, it's very striking how it always goes hand to hand. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, also, it's like it's guided by compassion. It's it's it's, it's very. <coughs> I don't know how that works, but it, it always seems to manifest itself this way. Uh, the, what we usually what we say is that seeing the oneness and the interdependence is wisdom, and then the functioning of that wisdom is compassion. So, of course, when you see that oneness and you take action, of course, it's compassionate. You know, that's exactly it. Uh, I would like to ask you a classical philosophical question. Oh. <laughs> I'm not a philosopher. With actions, intentions. Do you believe in free will? What do you mean by free will? Is the the, the the kind of that you you have the the, the capacity to to choose every moment, yeah. Of the of or if uh, all our actions, behaviors, thoughts are determined. This is the uh, determined by what? By the, the causal consequences of all the all life. Everything is. Well, I mean, then then you cross into what we would call karma where I am saying what I'm saying to you because you asked that question. So was that, was my response predetermined? Um, yeah, so, some some uh, philosophers think that everything is determined. Absolutely, I know this, and I'm, but I'm not a philosopher. And I and some of them would use science uh, as a sure, yeah. uh, scientific experiments, contemporary that, that uh, support the idea that everything is determined uh, by uh, 
infinite yeah. cause of causes and consequences. And in my experience, I could not say that because my experience is completely other than that. That in every moment, as I said, you know, the deeper we deep deepen our practice, things become more clear, and we see how to act appropriately in the circumstance. Had I not been sitting, and had not had I never done this practice, my career as a journalist would have been completely different. But I chose to sit on the cushion, and acted from that. So karmically, you could say that there was a chain reaction. But at every moment, it was me responding to a situation. I don't think there was any predetermination that said I would be sitting here in Natyarina on August 2nd, 2022, when I was born. I really don't, I can't even conceive experientially how that could be. It makes no sense from my experience. But I'm not a philosopher, and I know that philosophers have all sorts of ways of explaining these things. When you were telling the story of Auschwitz, people start to dance. Mm. Um, this is why I, I asked the question, because it looks like uh, they feel the, the, like the huge, huge to, to dance. It was a very like, uh, unconscious uh, behavior. And this is why I, uh, I thought about this classical philosophical question. Uh, maybe something uh, happened in their unconscious and uh, they made it dance. Uh, they dance. Well, so yeah, I, I think. It was determined by. A, by all the circumstances. Absolutely. Of, yeah, Defin definitely that. I don't know, uh, unconscious, I would use more like the term of heart. Um, and that uh, up from this ground of not knowing, which is similar, I mean, you could say it's kind of like the unconscious where, you know, we're not thinking about it consciously, but from this ground of not knowing arose in this great sitting hour after hour on the grounds of great horror and um, sitting right on the tracks where the selections were made of who would live and who would die, you know, that, it was very intense, the days. And so something came out of that ground of not knowing, of celebratory. celebratory. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know if you could say it was unconscious. I mean, you know, if you want to use that word, that's fine. And I'm probably talking about similar type things, but I don't know. Because I don't want to go into psychoanalysis either. I'm not a psychoanalyst. There's, we have people here who are much more expert in those domains than me, and uh, I can only talk from my experience. I want to make another philosophical <laughs> <laughs> why there is a, why universe exists and um, why that there is nothing zero or why universe exists exists it could be zero it could it could, could not not exist so what if they're the same why it exists what if they're the same like a multiverse of areas the universe and zero universes. are not separate 
That's not a philosophical response, because I can't respond philosophically. Can I go back to this, the Bernie and the bum? Because it made me realize something in 2000, ways back, Michel Dubois-Roshi and the rest of us made, made an association for the distribution of food on Sunday, it seemed to me. 500, 600 bums or exiles, all kinds of different people came. And Michel Dubois did everything by hand. It wasn't, this wasn't canned food. He actually cut up carrots for 600 people. And so I was very involved in this and so a lot of other people. And his, he came back again and again saying, that, well, not that purpose is not the food. He didn't say that, but he said, the, one of the main things that will come out of this experience, and it was so true, is you will get to know these people because we ate with them. And they were scary, and they were dirty, and had crap jumping off their clothes, and they didn't have any teeth, and, but we ate with them. And it's, then you relate with them, and then you're not afraid of them, and then when you see one in the metro, you kind of go, oh, hey, <laughs> I know you. And it was, it, that was the most amazing part of the experience, really, was to have a personal relationship with somebody who used to really frighten me. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I, I don't know if he, that was a reference to Bernie. Probably, it did, I don't know. Probably. I never thought about it before. Because Michelle did study with Bernie, Because Michelle too, studied with Bernie. Um. It probably also came from Michelle's experience. Michelle's a great heart, you know, and, this, um, and it's true, as you say. You know, think of all the times when we're so afraid of someone who looks strange, who doesn't look like us, who doesn't share the same views, who, you know, doesn't, who maybe is a stockbroker and we're not a stockbroker. Um, and, but if we really sit down and talk to that person, you know, there's, Something we can, we can meet them, yeah. And that has that comes from staying open, being like the ground that's receiving the rain. But that was hard. I was there in some of that in those early days, and that was hard. Yeah, it was. You know, it was fun too. We laughed a lot. And he's still doing it, Michelle. Yeah. 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 I just, I just want to make a very, very quick comment. I just want to say this interesting, this image of <clears throat> the, the earth receiving the rain and us being here receiving the Dharma rain. Whereas, of course, also because of climate change, there's drops all over and the earth is receiving less and less rain. <laughs> less and less rain in certain regions and too much in another. Too much in another. Right. Yeah. Actually, we have the same amount of water since. Ever. This was something the same amount of we have the, the same amount of water in the earth since uh, thousands of years ago. This was something that that, that was told a few years ago. Yeah, it's funny. It's not disappearing. We have the same water. It's just unbalanced the, the water cycle, and there is really not a lack. It's just too much out of balance. And, yeah. And, yeah. This this changed me something in my mind. <laughs> and this million of water is in your body. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. We're basically yeah. just water. Yeah, that's true. Mm. But the water is getting polluted, polluted. <laughs> and not uh, not good to drink. Yeah. Yeah. Or not good for the marine life, or yeah. yeah. <coughs> Question um, for the, 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 the chanting. Uh, if you could explain what I um, atone for, I don't know what the word atone is. Ah, good one. Um, thank you for bringing up that chant too, because I never said anything about that. And when we do that in the morning, we chant that, that chant, um, I'm basically going around the room greeting everyone. It's nothing more esoteric than that. Um, and so I really pay attention to each person I'm passing in front of. And I, I, the only one I formally bow to is Joe Sensei, because he is also considered a master in our lineage. Um, and so we chant this, you know, all the suffering that I've created. You know, whether it's through my greed, anger, ignorance, my body, my mouth, my thought, all the stuff I've done. Um, now I atone for it. So it can sound like very kind of Christian, like repent. Unfortunately, in Portuguese and in French, that's the word that is used for that chant, which is really unfortunate because that's not what it means. So atone means, it's really it's beautiful, the English language. It means at one, mm -hmm. put together. So I am at one with it. So I fully acknowledge the stuff I've done. Mm -hmm. um, even if I don't know, you know that wasn't intentionally trying to cause harm, but maybe I, you know, I'm not paying attention and I hurt someone or I took something that didn't belong with me, to me or um, any number of ways that we can do harm to ourselves too. Yeah. Um, I fully acknowledge it, and by acknowledging it, I become one with it, and then it's as if it's cleaned. doesn't mean it didn't happen, and it doesn't mean it won't happen again, but because I've acknowledged it and I've realized it, my chances of doing it again in that same way are fewer, and I won't, I'll be maybe more attentive the next time. So we chant this kind of just rote, we're not really thinking about what we're chanting, but that's what it's about. And I wish we could find a better word in French and in Portuguese for repent, because... Integrar? What does that mean? Integrate. It's kind of bring to you and make oneness on you, so... Maybe, yeah. Not. It's funny that this came up. Uh, in my first sitting, uh, the first day, uh, I, I heard I heard the chant as a way that I never heard before. I was I was never, and I'm still not interested at all in um, uh, reincarnation and, and that narrative that is part of the doctrine. But I just heard it in a different way. Um, all sufferings created by 
and from an impersonal way, impersonal perspective, not me, not my story, but all these sufferings created by this attachment to me, since of all, it's all, everyone, all lives, and from the impersonal perspective, not just atoning for my bad deeds, we we are atoning for, we have an opportunity to atone, to bring to wholeness all the sufferings mm. that ever were created yeah. because of this attachment to me in my personal life, in everyone's personal life. This came to me because sometimes there is this question what about reincarnation? Well, all sufferings created by me, since of all, that's it. <laughs> well, and it, yeah, when I hear you say that, I'm thinking also that, okay. <clears throat> my stuff that I've done but if we look at the impersonal then so me I know that I'm deeply disturbed by the genocide of the people who settled the country where I was born and I personally was not involved in that the genocide and the enslavement of people and building an entire country by killing and taking, stealing, and then enslaving. Um, I, but I, I feel deeply about that, and I, f I try to atone for that. Even though personally I wasn't involved, and my ancestors were part of the people who were helping the slaves secretly flee. Um, but they also settled farther west and were taking, I mean, all of us were taking land from the people who lived there. And I feel great responsibility in some sense. So the best I can do is just atone for, for it all and recognize it and acknowledge it and not perpetuate it and see those people, um, <coughs> see what the situation is, and maybe it won't happen again. That reminds me of um, generational trauma as well and how if we acknowledge it and if we understand it, we stop perpetuating it as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But we first have to acknowledge it. If we don't acknowledge it, then we perpetuate it. Yeah. Yeah. This is so important. In what way? I so many centuries before the world, people in America started to do genocide and it's uh, something that I think that collectively we, we have never seen yes. up to now. Yeah. And now people are acknowledging it? Well, you can't say it. Assume in English is like more like pretend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. The, the water is something really important and it's it's more or less I think we can bring this same subject to climate change take the responsibility of it that we are all doing it yeah exactly it doesn't feel like we're atoning enough for the next generations I don't feel like we are because there are people who are not atoning there are people who are not atoning and they are living further evil I think as a collective, we're not atoning enough for the next generation. All of us. I, I include myself. That's why we do this every single morning. <laughs> and repeat it for ourselves. And because that's uh, you know, another story from this Bernie book of someone, at, he was at a retreat and it was on a mountain and it was hot and a woman coming up the path fainted, an older woman. And people came and helped her, and, and then someone asked him the question during the talk, um, well, you know, there's so, like this, you know, this is such a huge emergency, and people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, and it's impossible, and even me, I'm not doing enough, and whatever, how can I help, and what, it's too much. And Bernie said, did you see that person who fainted on the path? And the guy said, yeah, and he said, and you saw the people who helped her. And he said, yes, and he said, that's all you have to do, yeah. is right here where you are, that's what you need to do. And then right here where you are, you know, like your work, Pedro, is working with people who are struggling with this and who are suffering from it and who are burnt out from activism. And so that's, that's how you are responding to the situation. Somebody else, you know, we say, turn off your air conditioners. Um, we we all respond to it in where we are. That's the only thing we can do, and it makes a difference. It really does. We, we can't really expect people that are not at the same treaty. Mm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? No, yeah, I'm say, uh, I don't think I'm gonna go there. <laughs> But this is Joanna Mason's point in the beginning of the book, which I never remember the title of. Active Hope. Yes, thank you, Active Hope. Is that we can get so depressed that we can't find anything that we can be motivated to do. Right. So don't take the hope, just pick something up in front of your house. Just, to that's right. Yeah. Start, walk around the park and, and pick up a few cups. Start where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I attended a conference a couple of uh, weeks ago by a <laughs> Uh, an Indian guru, it's called Sadguru, and he does this thing with the earth and all that. And some, someone in the audience started to say, so this whole thing is about the earth, the, the, the soil, the soil, that's this thing, say of the soil. And, and then someone in the audience said, oh God, it's so depressing, you know, what can I do? And it's so really depressing. I feel like I do so little. <laughs> yeah, and said, yeah, and said, the, the, the thing that the world doesn't need is your depression about it. <laughs> Don't add another extra thing on it because yeah. that's really not the solution. <laughs> I thought it was, well. But if you are feeling that, there are people who can help you with it, like Pedro. <laughs> um, I, we probably don't have much to uh, it's, yes, yeah. So all of it, though, comes back to 
staying present with what is, listening to the heart. Um, the you know the word, one etymology of the word corrupt. I think it's, is it the same word in Portuguese? Corrupt. Yes. yes. Yeah. Right. Core is heart. It comes from heart. Rupt, ruptured. So it's like a twisted or a broken heart leads to corruption. And corruption, I'm using this in a large, of doing things that go against the harmony, of exploiting, of harming, um, comes from not being, living from the heart and welcoming what arises. Not knowing, not fixed ideas. And then we know how to react. We know. We may become depressed. Um, but then we will know that we can turn to someone who can help us with that. Um, or um, we may not become depressed about it. We may have um, great energy. Or we may just say, okay, well, I can do this here. I can not have an air conditioner, which is great already. It helps. But really, sitting here now with what is. Yes. One more thing because we have to go. Yeah, I know. Um, I just <laughs> want to share, and uh, I, I never know what to say because I'm not that brilliant. I'm, you know, protecting the earth and whatever, <laughs> uh, speaking. But uh, Paul Borges always says something that I really believe, and I was feeling it. Like, uh, I, I do, do think we all, by this, by practicing this and practicing Zen, we are practicing some kind of uh, an activism because we are training our presence, our response to what comes up, to feel connected, to let love, uh, let love in, out, uh, out of love, out of care, out of paying attention, out of welcoming within people. And uh, if we all do this and somehow we pass it on, <laughs> Uh, we can all achieve, uh, I think, that uh, care about water, I'm sorry, uh, waste, uh, um, I, I forgot the word he said, <laughs> and the soil, and uh, I think it's important just not to share this. Thank you. Sorry for the... And I have one sentence, if I can, I'll say it in one sentence, and I'll promise to shut up, is that okay? I think sometimes when it comes to the climate crisis, getting depressed initially is, is helping. Mm -hmm. Allowing yourself to feel depressed yeah. is helping. Yeah. Because from then all, all kinds of other things can happen. So I totally disagree with that other <laughs> <laughs> And I've said it, I've said it, I promise to stop okay. It's like recognizing suffering. Yeah. Yes. It's like recognizing yes. suffering yes. that you really want to get out of it. Exactly, exactly. So it's all returning to here, now, what is present for you here and now. All about that. That's what we're doing here all week. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs>